this because studying our Bible is challenging. And if you don't think going back, you know, 1500 or two or 3000 years into an ancient text and you just think you're just going to kind of rock on in there and, and just do it, um, I've got news for you. When we come to the word, there is some work to be done by God's grace for sure, but we really need to come to the text with a mindset that this is an ancient document, it is timeless, but I want to make sure I understand what was going on when it was first written so that I can put it in context for my application today. So I, I always try to do that as I'm in the text, and so as I read these two chapters, um, one of the words that just kind of stood out to me, it's, it's not necessarily standing out in the text, but the, the theme of the passages, I think, is the love of God. And I think, uh, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? We've seen that plastered all over everything. And that's great. That's great news, Right? Um, Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Another very familiar verse that can become a little bit too familiar. In other words, we can get to where we just rehearse it, but we forget the significance of what that verse is really saying. And I would say in my own life, in counseling appointments that I have, and just conversations that I have with friends and family and everything else, one of our greatest deficiencies is our understanding of the love of God. And that isn't a new thing. It's always been true. I want to ask you, uh, I asked you to turn to Isaiah. Just scoot over into the New Testament for just a second. I want you to look into Ephesians and I want you to listen to a prayer that Paul prayed for the early church. This is Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. He said, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge why? That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Here's the deal about God's love. The dimensions of it, we can't even begin to grasp. And if that doesn't grab you right now this morning, then keep listening. <laughs> Because what we've been doing is we've been going through Isaiah. I know there's been a lot of judgment and a lot of sin and devastation and exiles and all kinds of crazy stuff. But there is this enormous story that is behind all that we've been reading about and studying in the book of Isaiah. And that enormous story is all about the love of God for his people. 
So this morning, I want you to bask in this. Just let it soak in. Let it color everything that you see. I hope today you will leave more convinced of God's love for you than you have ever been in your life. So, turn to chapter 61 of Isaiah. And I'm going to read the first three verses and we'll look at the first dimension of God's love in this passage. So, chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So this flows right out of chapter 60. If you didn't hear Kevin's message last week, I want to encourage you to go online and uh, capture that. He did a great, great job. But coming out of uh, what now is, is a preview of all the redemptive work that God has ahead of us, this redemptive work that is ongoing and certainly future. This voice breaks in in chapter 61, and if you've been with us for a while in Isaiah, sometimes it's hard to know who's talking, right? It's like, who is this? Is this Isaiah or is this God or what's going on here? So this new voice breaks in. And this voice says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now, the fact that the spirit of the Lord is upon the speaker, that should signal us. You can write uh, chapter 11 and chapter 42. In both of those places, uh, Isaiah references the spirit being upon the speaker, whoever it is, and animating, affirming uh, whoever that is. So there's something significant. Oftentimes it's the suffering servant that we have been learning about. If we were in Isaiah's day, we'd have a hard time, but we have a New Testament and we know who the suffering servant is. And we've actually perhaps read about a moment in Jesus' life when he used this passage, this, this very passage in Luke 4, right down Luke 4, 16 through 21, we're told that uh, Jesus was in Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue and it was customary that rabbis or teachers would be asked to read a, a scripture or a text for all who were gathered there. And so Jesus stands and somebody brings him a scroll. And guess what scroll it is? Isaiah. So he unrolls the scroll and, it's, and it says he, uh, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So there's some intentionality here. And he read what I just read. He stopped when, we, when it got to the point of proclaiming vengeance 
And commentators will say that's probably because it wasn't time for vengeance. This was the first advent or arrival of the Messiah. So he's just declaring the year of the Lord's favor. But what happened next is really interesting. He says, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. If he had a mic, he probably just would have dropped it, right? <laughs> exactly. So, he sits down and it says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Probably could have heard a pin drop. And then here's what he said to them. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm that guy. I'm the anointed one. The spirit is upon me and I've been sent by the father to deliver good news to you and to everybody else. So the first dimension of God's love, the, the message of good news here is deliverance. Look at the text. He came to deliver good news to the poor. Build up the brokenhearted. Proclaim liberty to the captives. And that's not just like you're in jail. It could be any kind of incarceration. Opening the prison to those who are bound. Other translations will say those who are blind. So you could have spiritual implications here. And then here's the heart of it all. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now what happened in what was known as the year of Jubilee. It's in Le uh, Leviticus 25. This was a practice that the Lord gave to his people for them to practice uniquely. And uh, it's amazing. Every 50 years, regardless of circumstance, they had a reset. So, for instance, if you had lost everything for whatever reason, uh, nature or... Uh, got taken over by somebody or whatever. If you lost anything or everything, after 50 years, everybody got everything returned to them. That was the practice. Now, we don't know if Israel did actually obey that, but that was the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. And that's the word, the good word, the good news that this suffering servant, this anointed one, is bringing to these broken people. And then I love how this section ends when he talks about a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. You see this, that, that word instead repeated again and again and again. And what you see is the suffering servant is bringing to these people what they don't deserve. They deserve exile, punishment, judgment, all of that. But the good news is, despite their behavior, despite their morality, despite their disobedience, all of that, he's gonna bring blessing. And the, I think the thing I love most about this particular part of the passage is um, the anointed one who's bringing the good news. He is the good news. Like in Jesus' day, that's what he's saying, saying, hey everybody, I got a great message for you. We're going to get a reset, a year of jubilee. 
Everything's going to be wiped clean. It's the, it's the Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all free. And the good news is, I'm the good news. I'm here. And I love you. You see how John 3.16 and Romans 5.8 and probably countless other passages begin to take on some significance for us that we realize when we listen to the anointed one, the suffering servant. Last thing I'll mention about this one section, uh, it mentions oaks of righteousness. And that's a picture of stability and permanence and abundance. Write down Psalm 1, the tree planted by streams of living water that bears its fruit in its season. It never withers. That's the kind of life that these people are being delivered into as a result of the work of the suffering servant. So the first expression or dimension of God's love is deliverance. The second is uh, restoration. Restoration. This is in verses four through seven and the anointed one continues. He says, they, that is Israel, shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you, Israel, shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you, those nations around you, as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. Here's the word instead again, twice. Instead of your shame... There shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, which you deserve, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Now, don't you know the people of Israel who are in captivity, in Babylon, in exile, with Jerusalem in ruins, don't you think... They wondered if that would ever be corrected. Do you, do you think they, they might have given up hope that they would ever be able to return to the, quote, promised land and enjoy life as God intended for them? Do you think they'd given up hope for that? And yet Isaiah's writing, there is gonna be a day when ruins and devastations are going to be built up and raised up and repaired. And I love here that God isn't just going to do that while they stand back and watch. Like they're not just observing all this. He's going to use them. They are going to do the building. They're going to do the raising up. They're going to do the work of restoration. Certainly enabled by God. Most importantly, I think their work is going to be, as it says here, as priests. Ministers of the Lord. It was always the plan that God would choose a people, a people for his own possession, so that he could love them. And based on that relationship, they would be ministers for God, advocates in between a world in defiance against God and their creator. They would stand in the gap and they would bring those together. A kingdom of priests 
1 Peter 2.9, jot that down. That's exactly what Peter calls us. We are called to be a kingdom of priests, a people for God's own possession. Those who carry the good news of the anointed one to a world in need of it. So that the world might hear about deliverance. So that the world might hear about restoration that is available only in him. Love that. But it gets better. Down in verse 8 and 9, we get a word of assurance. And actually, there's a new voice that breaks in here. Uh, and by the way, this, this whole section here is a great Trinitarian passage. Father, Son, Spirit, right? We have the anointed one who is anointed by the Spirit. So we got Son and Spirit. And now we got the Father speaking in. The Lord or the Sovereign Lord, and here's what he says. This is the reason for deliverance and restoration. He says, I, the Lord, love justice. And that's not just justice in a punishment sense. It's justice in the sense of rightness. The Lord loves when everything is right, the way it ought to be. He hates robbery and wrong. He hates all that is contrary to justice. And so he says, I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. Remember, he's speaking about Israel who is in exile, who were defiant against him. This is unbelievable. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are in an offspring the Lord has blessed. Now again, we're, we're, not, we're talking about the dimensions of God's love and we're talking about this larger story. Certainly the cross is at the very center of God's love for humanity. But there was a whole lot happening prior to the cross, wasn't there? God chose a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah. They couldn't have kids. He said, you're gonna have a kid and that kid is gonna be the father of an entire nation. And that nation is going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And the reason it will be that is because there will be one who comes out of that nation who will do for that nation what it can't do for itself. He will be the lamb who was slain. So all of that's happening here and it's all because the Lord loves justice. The Lord loves to make things right and that's an expression of his character. That's an expression of his love for you. And this isn't just like hearsay. He actually makes a covenant, an everlasting covenant, which actually surpasses all of the previous covenants. It's not that they're insignificant. It's that this is so much better. Write down Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Despite all of Israel's failings, the Lord comes and says, I am going to initiate a covenant with you that I cannot break because of my character. And you're gonna be the beneficiary of it. And all you have to do is trust me. That sounds easy, doesn't it? Just trust the Lord. That's it though. No works, no performance, no nothing. Just trust that what God says is true. And this in Isaiah 61 is a word of assurance to you 
that God will do as he says. Great, great encouragement and a great expression of God's love. So how would you expect a people to respond to to this good news that the anointed one has brought? I loved what uh, Kevin was saying about a happy day and how sometimes we can kind of get our categories a little mixed up between joy and happiness and all that. So if somebody comes to you and they say, it's the year of Jubilee, no condemnation, complete reset, complete forgiveness, what would you do? Well, here's what the writer of Isaiah did. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Sounds like a celebration. Like that's the kind of heart response I want to have. And I think if you and I get the height and depth and length and breadth of God's love for us, that's what we do. It just comes out of us. We can't even help it. Now listen to what the writer says. For he, that is God, has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. The, the dimension of love here that I think Isaiah captures is splendor. Now, how many of you have used the word splendor in the last 10 years? <laughs> Not many. I get that. Well, we're going to bring back a good old word, splendor. And I just want you to think, it doesn't matter where it comes from. I want you to think of the most glorious, extravagant, lavish piece of clothing you've ever seen in your life. Bedazzled beyond imagination. That's the picture here of what God has done in the midst of incredible ugliness. It's like a people who come to God and they're just ugly inside and out. Everything about them is offensive. And he brings out the most glorious robe and he puts it around them. Splendor. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. It's breathtaking. And they didn't do anything to get it. It's just because he loves us. That's it. I mean, if you're looking for another reason, you're going to be looking for all of eternity. That is the only answer. God loves you. So he covers you with garments of salvation and a robe of righteousness. It is magnificent. Those two words, salvation and righteousness, sort of give us a picture into the, the fullness of when we talk about the gospel. Um, and I love it when we, when we do this. It's like when you were justified, which that would be the moment when you were covered with that garment of righteousness or salvation. Here's the idea. We've said this before, but it's, it's as if you never sinned. Can, do you have a category for that? <laughs> when the Lord looks at you, if you're covered in this way, it literally is as if you never did a thing wrong, but that's not all. 
When he sees you that way, clothed that way, covered that way, it's as if you have always done what's right. How many of you have always done what's right? Unbelievable. That's the picture here. That's what God has accomplished simply by covering you with his love. So deliverance, restoration, assurance, splendor. I think when I hear those words and I think about these dimensions of God's love, I I feel what I feel when I sing a song like Amazing Grace, right? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and like you for no other reason than his great love for us. Well, that's chapter 61. Let's break into chapter 62. And the anointed one resumes, begins to speak again. Remember, he was sent by the Lord to bring good news to the poor. And so he says in verse one of chapter 62, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. In case you're wondering, I'm gonna keep on delivering good news. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And by the word, that, that phrase, you shall no more, it literally is never, never, never again. It can't happen. Never to be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, here it is, my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride and if I don't care if you underline your Bible or not get your pen out as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is just awesome. Incredible contrast. Forsaken. Desolate. Dead. <laughs> lifeless. Fruitless. That's what Israel was. And it didn't take a rocket scientist to realize that. Very obvious. But the Lord, through his love, intervenes and he says, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you a reset. It's the year of Jubilee. We start over. My name for you is my delight is in her. And I wonder, I really wonder if you really believe that. Or if you just sort of nod your head because you're supposed to believe that God delights in you. But have you ever really thought about what that means? I want to give you some pictures. 
I'm sure all of you have been to at least one wedding this summer, right? Or maybe heard about it or something. Okay, so, uh, you know, customarily, right, everybody rises and the bride comes in. And where does everybody look? At the bride. Rightly so. That's great. Have you ever looked at the groom? It's awesome. I mean, you just never know what you're going to see. But that guy, I mean, he is ready and when he sees her break through the door, it's like overwhelming. And if, in case you're wondering, I'm going to show you some pictures. Here's some real guys when they see their bride. Look at that guy. He's just without words. Look at him. He can't believe he gets to marry this girl. That guy's ready. He's like, come on, man. How about it? Just overcome. There's my favorite. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> that is awesome, man. That guy's ready to get married. <laughs> hey, listen. That is what God thinks of you. He is like the groom and he's at the, he's at the altar and it's wedding day and you just came around the corner and he saw you and he just lit up. He can't wait for you to get down the aisle. He thinks it's the greatest thing in the world that you would be his. That is the love of Christ for you. That's worth celebrating, isn't it? And you've got to answer the question, do you believe it? And don't answer right now. I want you to think about that. Do you really believe that God loves you like that? He does. The word here is significance. And here's what I'll tell you. There is nothing more significant about you than that you are the apple of God's eye. Just jot down Psalm 17, 8 and Zechariah 2, 8. Psalm 17, 8, Zechariah 2, 8. You are the apple of God's eye. He is crazy about you. He loves you more than you can imagine. And that's why Paul prayed that we would grasp that because that changes everything. It changes our whole outlook, our whole perspective, our priorities, our values. Everything about us changes when we see ourselves as beloved by our God. All right, keep moving. 62.6. The next dimension of God's love is protection. And uh, I'm not gonna read this section, but I'll just tell you. Um, the anointed one says, I have set up watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, the reason he says he's placed them there is so that they might uh, remind God of the oath that he swore to do everything that he said he would do. This everlasting covenant. So these watchmen, they are there under God's appointment to say back to him, you're God, you're the redeemer, you're the savior, you're the deliverer, you're the one who is going to make all things right. Not because he might forget, but to only affirm what will certainly be true. So yes, there is some assurance here, but there is protection. You see the loving, protective heart of God. The, the outcome.
outcome of this. When God does make everything new. Look at uh, verse 8. It says, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. That's the oath of God. And he set up watchmen just to let everybody know that I'm committed to this. This is a combination of intent and ability. God will do what he has said he will do. You can count on it. And it is his heart to protect his people to the very end and beyond. Those are the dimensions in this text for God's amazing love for you. Deliverance, restoration, assurance, splendor, significance, and protection. So after such good news, Isaiah finishes chapter 62 with a word of exhortation. And it's a good one. It's one that I hope we can all take with us out of here today. Here's what he would say to you. Since God loves you so fully, live like you're loved. Live like you're loved as if he really does think this way about you and let it affect you in every sense. Here's his exhortation, verse 10. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the people's. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. It's coming. I know it's hard. I know it's ugly. I know there's circumstances that are completely out of our control, but your salvation comes and God loves you. These people that God loves, they shall be called the holy people. The redeemed of the Lord, more names, and you shall be called sought out. Love that. And a city not forsaken. So, in light of this beautiful, redemptive, restorative year of Jubilee work that God is doing, the verbs here go, prepare, build, clear, lift. Live like you're loved everywhere you go. At home, at work, with neighbors, with friends, in every way. Live like you're loved. And lest you forget, I love how Paul ends his prayer. I want to return to that as we move toward a so what. Ephesians 3 again, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And I'll just put in parentheses. Now to him who loves you more than you can even imagine and who is able to do far more than you could ever ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in the Christ Jesus throughout all generations. As a so what, I want to ask you to think about 
what would it look like if your heart and mind were just saturated with conviction about the love that God has for you, what difference would it make? How would you relate differently? How would you work differently? How would you handle all that God has entrusted to you? I mean, there's endless applications here. One big question. Do you grasp the full dimensions of God's love for you? Consider that for your so what.